Well, good morning, church family. As you uh, grab your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 28 and 29, is where we're going to be hanging out uh, here today. If you are new to Mission Church, my name is Eric Baker, and I'm one of the pastors here, uh, and the primary teaching pastor here at Mission Church, along with uh, Pastor Justin, uh, who is working today for Hope House, and uh, for Pastor Todd, who is on sabbatical, and uh, will be ramping back on in January. And so on behalf of us and those of us who call Mission Church our church home, we are very thankful that you guys have gathered with us. And so by way of introduction, just to catch you up to speed, if you have not been hanging out with us and you don't know where we're going to be at today, uh, may not make a little bit of sense. So let me catch you up to speed of what's happening. Uh, There's this guy named Moses. He's written a a large portion of the Old Testament, the first five books of the Old Testament. And uh, Moses is one of the leaders, God's chosen leaders of the people of Israel. And again, you've maybe seen the Prince of Egypt or the Ten Commandments, and uh, maybe you've read it in the Bible, and I hope that you have. But Moses is the chosen leader, and uh, he is the mediator, he is the prophet for the people of God. He stands between God Almighty and His holiness, and then these people of God that God is delivering from the slavery and the bondage of the Egyptians. Uh, They are currently walking uh, through the desert, and they're camping out of these different places that God would see fit for them to kind of hang out for a little while. And one of the major places that God was wanting to get them to was a place called Mount Sinai. And this is a very significant mountain in the life of the Israelites. And it's on this mountain where he gives them, God gives Moses the Ten Commandments and then the ceremonial law and the civil law. And so it's this conversation that happens between God and uh, the people's representative. After he gets this information, he goes back down the mountain. He tells everybody, all the Israelites, okay, this is God. And he's representing God as his presence on this mountain is like thunder and lightning. The Bible described it as this consuming fire that is on top of this mountain. So everybody sees, looks up this mountain, and they can see a portion of the presence of God, and then Moses is up there talking to God. Again, Moses gets this information. He comes back down. He says, this is what God is demanding of us. What is your response? And the people say, we will do as God, as Yahweh has told us to do. The demands that he requires, we will fulfill. So they're really excited about that. They're excited about God being with them. And then Moses, God calls Moses back up to the top of the mountain to give him more information um, for them to fulfill and, and to obey as they're moving forward. And so what happened last week is we peered into um, that conversation between God Almighty again and Moses. And in that conversation, Moses is given what is known as the pattern. Uh, He's essentially given a blueprint from God, a vision, if you will, of what this house of God would look like, what it would be like, um, because God is wanting to to even leave uh, his, his presence and go down the mountain where all of his people are, and wherever they travel, uh, he wanted to make it very clear that he is their God, and that they are his people, and that his desire is, is to be with them, but because he's holy, because he is right, 
righteous. Because he is perfect, he cannot be in the presence of evil. And so some things are required. Death is required. The covering of sin is required. And, and how that would be manifested inside of this worship sanctuary that would travel with them was called the tabernacle. And it is this very ornate, very specific tent house of meeting um, that God has designed and has given this pattern um, in the Hebrew language just kind of paints that picture of this vision that Moses is given of this tabernacle and it would lo and behold be the tabernacle or the dwelling place of God and his presence among his people for over 500 years and so Moses was given that last week and we had a picture of that and just briefly catch you up again um, of what that would look like so within the center of all of these hundreds of thousands if not millions of people known as the Israelites at the center of this community and this traveling community at this point would be the presence of God, a place of worship for God. They could be anywhere in the encampment around it, and they could look to the center of this community, of their village, and they could see, no, God is with us, and this is the tabernacle. And we saw last week that ultimately this becomes a shadow. It's a foretelling of the one true tabernacle and that his name is Jesus. And that's why today, like in this building ourselves, this brick and mortar building, that this is not the church, but rather we, the people, are the church because God himself, Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, has saved those of us who are in Christ, and that means that he dwells in us. And so there's nothing really sacred about this space, what is sacred is those of us who are in Christ, Christ is in us, making us this sacred group of people. But that's all foretold inside the Old Testament. You need to get this, that the Old and New Testament aren't in uh, combating against each other. The Bible from Genesis to Revelation is telling one solid story, and it is all pointing to the person and work of Jesus and we're going to see that even more clear here today. So hopefully by that time, in that long introduction, you got a chance to get to Exodus chapter 28. Um, we won't be reading all of these chapters, but some sections of these chapters, so follow along with me. Exodus chapter 28 says this, Then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priest. Aaron... And Aaron's sons, Nadab, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithmar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother, for the glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold and blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. 
All right? And so let's skip over as well a few more pages here. I'm going to explain what happens in the rest of those passages, but that gives a general understanding. And in verse 29, we have one verse, and then I'm going to cover the rest in the sermon today. But it says this in chapter 29, verse 1, Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priest. This is, again, the word of the Lord. So, when we read this passage, it's important for us to understand that inside the book of Exodus, at the very beginning, or chapter 19, that God tells Moses that one of the reasons why he wants his people to be set free from the slavery and the bondage of the Egyptians is that they would become, in Exodus chapter 19, and through his redemptive work, that that they would literally become a priesthood and a holy nation that they had a responsibility in the service of God and in the service of of the world to serve them as priests, not just a few of them, but but all of them. And we're going to see that in this process, though, that even over the last several chapters, that the people of God have come uh, a little bit, and rightfully so to some degree, but even to the point of probably being unhealthy, uh, fear of God. We are to fear Him, we are to respect Him, and yet, what is He wanting from us? He's wanting to be near us. He's wanting to have a relationship with us. So this has been, from the very beginning, an idea, the point of God's people, that they would, again, serve God and serve the world. We see that within the tabernacle, this place of worship for the people where God would dwell, that he's going to establish something called the priest. Now, these are specific priests that have a specific role. Now, when we're talking about the idea of priest, it's important to get who these men are. As we saw inside the passage, Moses has a brother, and his brother is named Aaron. And if Moses is serving as the prophet inside of this nation, what does prophet mean? That doesn't mean always that you're foretelling the future. What the word prophet means is that you are a messenger of God. You speak prophetically. Again, that doesn't mean that you know when Jesus is coming back or when price of gas is going to drop. Hallelujah. Can we get an amen? Holy Spirit activate or something. Y'all are going to start singing that. And when we see that take place, is that prophecy, again, is not some foretelling of the future um, always, but usually it's being that mouthpiece of God. Some might say that even this morning, that in some sort of role that I'm being prophetic, that I'm preaching, teaching you, hopefully, the word of God this morning. Well, Moses stands in that role. He's the mediator. He's the prophet. God speaks to him. And what does Moses do? He tells the people what God has said. So God tells Moses on on the mountain, again, he's by himself. He says, hey, I got a job for your brother. Hey, Aaron. All right. Or like my cousin used to say, "Uh uh-uh, Aaron. All right. Because two A's run. Okay, I'm from Franklin. Uh, and so in that, we see that Aaron's brother, or Aaron, excuse me, Moses' brother Aaron has a job. Aaron also has sons, and he has a job for them as well. 
And so he's going to give them this role, this responsibility within the tabernacle, within God's house, if you want to call it that, that he needed men to serve in these roles in order to serve God and to serve the people. So this is essentially what priests are doing. They're making sure that this tabernacle is taken care of, they're serving God, they're set apart for God, and they have a responsibility of really serving the people, really caring for the people. We're going to see over the course of the next uh, few weeks here that the priests are responsible, as I even talked about last week, for the helping sinful people uh, with their sacrifices. Because again, to be in the presence of God, you got to be holy. You got to be, your sins must be atoned for. They must be covered. And God establishes a way of taking the innocence of animals and then applying our sin to those animals and then sacrificing those animals in a specific way for the covering of your death. And, and the substitute, instead of you and I dying, these animals would die, and then their blood is spread and all those sorts of things. You'll have to listen to last week's sermon, and I'm going to preach on it again here right before uh, Christmas. But we see that all of these things are taking place within the tabernacle. And so these word, priest, is a, a derivative. It's very similar to the word that we get ministry from. So think minister. Um, pastor doesn't necessarily equate, um, because we're not here working and serving necessarily in a building, but pastors are to be, again, very priestly. We're to serve God by serving the people, by pastoring the flock that is among us, and that was a very priest-like responsibility. So God has chosen in his economy how he's going to set this up. He's going, hey, Moses, got this house I want you to build. Wherever these people go, this house is going to get up. You're going to set it up, tear it down, set it up, tear it down, set it up, tear it down. Everywhere you go, and guess what? I'm going to fill that place. It's just, you know, tents and skins and all these sorts of things. But when my presence comes, guess what this place is? It is holy because I am holy, and I want Aaron and all of his sons to work inside of this tabernacle. Again, you can imagine that... These people, these priests, represent God to the people, but simultaneously, they represent the people to God. All right? Um, you could probably equate that a little bit to maybe our elected officials. Uh, we elect officials, and what are they supposed to do when they go to Washington or to the state government? They're supposed to, supposed to, represent what the people want. They are representatives. Everybody got that? So priests kind of work in that function. They represent God. Hey, God is among us, right? Look at all these, these priests, these chosen men of God. They represent, hey, God's dwelling place is sacred. It is holy. We need to recognize that God is with us. And yet, simultaneously, the priests are going to go through these different ceremonies with the animals and the sprinkling of blood and all these things that they have to do every day to represent the people to who? To God. Everybody got that? I know we are having a little Bible study this morning, but like the last several weeks, we're heading somewhere, I promise. All right, so we see the beauty of what is taking place inside of these people. They are set apart, the priests are set apart for God's service. So how are they set apart? Well, they're set apart primarily in two different ways. The first way is in their clothing. And so, Mr. Ivan, if you could cue that one up. 
this is how you know that priests were among you. How are they set apart from everybody else? All right? As everybody else is wearing Abercrombie and Camel, and these guys are wearing this stuff. All right? They look very different from everyone else. And some of you are just now getting that. That's okay. Um, younger people catch up the older people later, all right? And so the, uh, the, what's happening inside of this temple, inside of this community, is you could easily say these people are different. Now, within Catholicism, which is not the same thing as Protestant Christianity, we're not Catholic, we're Protestant, um, you can obviously see that they still believe in this priesthood, uh, these men who serve in these roles at the church, and how do we all know them on TV? Well, they, they wear that, that shirt without the collar on it, or it has a very small collar. It's a banded collar if you're from the mid-90s. We, got, we brought those back for even non-priest types. It's that black shirt with the, the collar and has that little white piece right here, right? Why do they wear that? So you can automatically know if you're in a crowd of people, well, where's the holy guy? Where's the guy that's set apart? Boom, there he is. He's got a priest shirt on and a collar, Right? Uh, we don't really do that inside of Protestant Christianity, and I'll explain to you why um, here in just a little while. But one of the ways that they are set apart as these holy men, Aaron and his sons, is by literally what they wear. And this is, again, designed by God. This is the purpose of God inside of the people of God so that they would know, man, these people are to serve God and to serve us. They are to represent God and to represent us to God. And so when we're looking at these clothes as this described and as I read to you guys in Exodus chapter 28, we see several different things. Specifically on the high priest, this guy that's in a little bit, you know, he's, he's, he's wearing a new you know, fashion. Um, this would be what the high priest would wear. This is what Aaron would wear. And the, the guy in the all white, that is what one of his sons would wear. So if we're to look at the high priest, his garments and what they would wear, well, the Bible tells us that he wears a breastplate as it's represented here. What's interesting about this breastplate is that it kind of forms this square, this rectangle that is on the very chest of the high priest, and each one of those squares is made up of a very valuable gemstone, all right? Now, what's also crazy about this, or cool about this, is that within those gemstones, it has each or a single name of each of the tribes of Israel. The people of God are close to the heart of God. Pretty cool, isn't it? What Ezekiel will tell us later on inside the Old Testament is that these gemstones are actually the gemstones as well that are represent or actually. Uh, much of Eden was even found and made up of these exact same gemstones as well. Um, the Bible would tell us uh, that there's the ephod, all right? Anybody know what the ephod is? The ephod is the, the more the blued colored uh, robe, all right? He's got the white robe, and then he has the ephod over it, and that's represented by that uh, blue color. Uh, he has a, a, wo a woven tunic that you can see. He is wearing a turban. He has on a sash, and what's cool as well, you can't see it in this diagram, uh, but across his head there is a, a golden plate that says, um, holy to the Lord. It's interesting that it, that's the words that it says, holy to the Lord. Why? Because these men, what does the word holy mean? It means to be set apart, 
to be different. And these men, the high priest, is wearing a cross his forehead, holy to the Lord. It was a reminder both to the people. Oh, this dude is holy to the, like he's set apart. All right, it's not like he's Superman or anything. You're going to learn that very quickly. Um, but it's also a reminder to him, all right, that I'm set apart, that I'm, I'm different, that God has a specific role and responsibility um, for me. Also, it's important, even as you see inside this diagram, that if you're working inside the tabernacle, that you cannot wear shoes. Anybody know why? What's it a picture of? Who is there? God is there. Remember way back in the book of Exodus, God and Moses have another conversation. A younger Moses and God have a conversation. And in that conversation, Moses steps forward uh, toward a bush that is burning and yet is not being consumed. And um, God, and, and the way that God says this, Yahweh says this, he says, take off your shoes. Why? Because you are standing on holy ground. Well, the same presence that consumed that bush, the same presence that is on top of that mountain is about to transfer that presence from that place to where? To the tabernacle, thus rendering it what? Holy. This is holy ground. So the priests weren't allowed to wear uh, shoes because they were constantly working inside of the tabernacle. I want you to imagine just for a moment. Um, I used to live in the desert in the Phoenix Valley area, and what, it's a beautiful place. It really is. But it's it's a. We often say, as uh, former Arizonians and as people who lived in Arizona, um, that it's it's not like Kentucky. That's all green. But this is a different beautiful. It is. It's really a beautiful place. It's just a different beautiful. But if you have ever been to uh, Arizona or in any sorts of desert, uh, you will quickly see all of the, the tones of beige and browns and all these sorts of stuff. So color would stand out. Can't you imagine, ladies and gentlemen, the glowing effect that these men would have painted against the backdrop of the desert? It's believed that what Moses is seeing as he sees this pattern, imagine God give, rolling out a blueprint. All right, Mo, you're about to build this. But simultaneously, the picture that Moses gets of Aaron of his brothers as they're wearing these different types of clothes is that there is a radiance about them, that they are essentially glowing, and that wherever you look, Guess what? You can find help in your deepest and darkest night. You can look. Where's the priest? They would stand out in the crowd, right? You ever seen these um, missionaries? This is so bad. I, I, don't like, I do not like this. But you can always tell in the summertime, uh, churches that are going on mission trips, right? Because they've all got like a neon shirt and a really bad Christian slang on the front of it, Right? Um, when we've gone to Haiti and Niger, you, you will see this, all sorts of things. But, but it is helpful inside of the airport. Why? Because if you see in the sea of people, all of a sudden they got a hot pink or a hot green shirt on, then you know, that's my people, right? Catch up to them or you'll be left behind like Kevin in Home Alone. All right? You got to stay with your people. Look to find help. All right? So God is establishing that, not only in the center of the community, is it the courthouse, is it government from the earth, in the center of this city is what? The house of God. 
And who works there? His priests. They serve God. They serve the people. If you're struggling, if you're hurt, if you're broken, you can run to that place or the outside of that place because that's where these priests would live. You can run to it and you can quickly go, I know that there's something different about that guy. He is here to help me. He is here to represent me. I can run to him and find refuge and find hope. So how are they set apart first? They're set apart by what they wear. All right? And so all of 28 is about how to make the very specifications of what God would have these outfits. All right? So the head high priest, what's his name? High priest. And the first one, his name is Aaron. The priest under him are his sons. The second way that he is, or these priests are set apart as they're consecrated is found in chapter 29, right? Moses, God tells Moses, hey, I want to get Aaron, get his sons, and we're going to consecrate them. Again, what does the word consecrate mean? It means to set apart, to make them holy, to make them different. And so what happens inside of chapter 29? Well, in verse 4, it tells them, hey, you got to take a bath. All right? You got to get wet. got to clean yourself up. Go take a bath. All Aaron, all your boys, y'all go take a bath. After they take a bath, then guess what happens? They get to put on these special clothes that God wants them to wear. After they put on these special clothes, God tells Moses, hey, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take all of this incense and all these special herbs and spices, all right? And I want you to mix them up, put them into the oil, and I want you to pour the oil on the top of each of these dudes' heads so that they're covered in it. Their hair is covered in it, their beards are covered in it, and all of their clothes are covered in it. Because in in the midst of all of this death, what happens? They occasionally get the aroma of a sweet and beautiful fragrance. They are the anointed ones. They've had a bath, they've been given special clothes, and then they are anointed by God through this oil. Now, if you don't know this, anytime you see people being anointed with oil, I grew up in a church where that was like a part of our congregation all the time. It was like if you were sick, buddy, they, they got the oil out, right? They, do, they put it on your forehead, right? Because even the New Testament would say to call the elders of the church to anoint people's heads with oil and to pray over them. Now, it, there's nothing magical. I used to think it was magical oil as a kid, all right? I later found out it was like olive oil from the Walmarts. Ain't nothing magical about that place. All right? But you'd hear these, uh, or this picture, though, is again, there's nothing magical about this oil, but inside of the Old and New Testament, what does the oil represent? The Holy Spirit. And it's not just something that you feel, it's something that you smell. I love that God is, I'm a very um, visual learner, in case you haven't noticed, so I, we show drawings on Sunday morning sometimes. So learn, I like to use all of my senses. I don't want to just hear. I want to touch, I want to taste. And I'm so thankful that we have a God for slower kids like me growing up and kids who had ADD like me growing up, that he would give us these tangible hands-on learning experiences, and that's one of the things that he does with the oil. This is my presence, like I am with you, I am on you, okay? So, 
We see this taking place inside of this special anointing oil that is placed on them. So they've been given a bath, then they have special clothes, now they have anointing oil that's placed on them. Now what's going to take place? For seven days, they have to kill a bull for every, sun, every, every day for seven days, and they're also going to have to kill uh, two ram, all right? for the covering of their own sins. Because what are these people? Are these people superheroes? No. They're sinful men. And there's all this stuff that chapter 29 tells us that they do with the different animals. Uh, one, they put everything in it. They set it on fire. and it's, it's, it, The Bible says that it's a sweet aroma, and we talked about this last week, that it's this grill smell that goes up to heaven, and the smoke represents kind of our, our prayers going up toward God. All right? And the Bible says that this is a sweet aroma to God himself. Uh, what else they do is they take some of the blood, the Bible tells us in chapter 29, and they put it on the right ear of Aaron and his sons. Isn't that weird? They put it on the right big toe of Aaron and his sons. And they do all this different things. Does anybody know why? Because inside of a biblical culture, the right to the right was a place of honor. It's believed at the Last Supper um, that when the, the disciples are in the upper room, right, before Jesus is going to die, that the person sitting in the place of honor was Judas. All right? Jesus will be at the right hand of the Father. All right? um, there's some other cultural things that you do with your left hand that I won't go into. Um, the right hand is safe and pure. How's that? Okay. And so you did pretty much everything with your right hand. It's this place and position of honor. All right. So how are the priests set aside? They're set aside by their clothing, and they're also set aside by their consecration. This, um, it's often known as an ordination, but it's this special service that they have to say, all right, these men are set apart. Think for just a moment, um, going through uh, a man or a woman going through boot camp, and at the end of that, they have a graduation ceremony. Um, some of our, our kids are going to be graduating, or maybe you graduated from high school, or from college, or from the sixth grade, or kindergarten nowadays. Whatever it may be for you or your family, but it's like there is something special. There's a ceremony that's going to take place, and from this day, like your wedding, it should be completely different after this. And that's what happens every time that there is a new priest that is put in this position to serve in God's tabernacle. All right? Everybody got the Bible study? Everybody understand what priests are? What do they do? They serve God, serve people. They represent God. They represent the people. All right? They're set apart. You should know them by the way that they dress, but even more so by what they do. All right? So we see that taking place inside of this book and this conversation that God has with Moses. All right. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take that information, and maybe you're new to the Bible, um, or maybe you're not, but you just didn't know this. It's really important for us to understand, as I've been trying to do over the last several weeks, is for us to understand that the Bible is one story. It's written over thousands of years by several different authors, and yet it does not contradict itself. And they're all telling the same story. This is the story of God. This is the story of Jesus. It is all pointing toward him. 
This idea of priest wasn't brought on just inside the book of Exodus. All right? So what I want to do is, and I've got a slide to, to show you this, to, to work through this with you, is I want to hit some high points inside of the scripture of tracing the theme of the priest throughout the Bible. This is another way of studying the Bible, is that you can look at different things. Like you can look at buildings, or you can look at kings, uh, you can look at prophets, you can look at mountains, you can do all sorts of things. And one of the important ways of doing that is tracing this idea of priest throughout the scripture. All right? So, the first time that we see priest on the scene is actually found in the book of Genesis. Think about this for a moment. God creates the heavens and the earth. The Bible says, Jesus says, uh, the Holy Spirit says, in the first chapter, let us go down, let us create them in our image. The Trinity has always been God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And in that process, the Bible and the New Testament would tell us that Jesus is the primary creator of all things. And so uh, Jesus and the Godhead are, are, are in the Old Testament, and they decide that they're going to make man and woman. What is Eden? Well, Eden is the place where heaven itself, the divine, comes and meets earth. Not my will, but your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Eden is that place. The Bible tells us, I told our MC this week, that the Bible points to this picture in Hebrew that the idea of Eden is actually on top of a mountain. And that this is the holy dwelling place of God. And the people are good. He creates Adam and Eve. And the Bible tells us that God walks with them in the cool of the day. That they have fellowship, communion with God. Because what does God really want? God wants to be with his creation. And then he gives them some responsibilities. See if you can pick up on this. I want you to be fruitful and multiply. I want you to work the earth. Take care of my Eden. Take care of my dwelling place. The first pictures that we see of priests are actually of Adam and Eve. That was their role. That was their responsibility to be fruitful, make other priests on this earth to take care of this planet. But they didn't want to be priests, did they? They wanted to be king. They wanted to be God. And so, for God to be who he is, he has to remove them, but he doesn't remove them without first covering their sins through the killing of an animal and simultaneously giving them a promise. There's going to be a priest that comes. There's going to be a priest that comes. All right? So, you keep reading the Bible, and you get to this uh, guy named Avram, all right? Avram, who eventually becomes Abraham, he's married, he's old, they cannot have kids, right? And there's this crazy story. I would encourage you to go home and read it. You won't get very far because it's a huge mystery. But inside of the book of Genesis, uh, Abraham has been set apart by God. He's been consecrated by God. This is my chosen father of my nation. This is pre-Exodus. This is the first Israelite, and his name is Abraham. All right? And Abraham has many ups and downs inside of his life, no doubt. But what's interesting about that is that Abraham was uh, fighting in this battle, and he comes across to this city called Salem. All right? And out from that city, the Bible tells us, is this guy named Melchizedek. Name your kid that one. 
And this guy comes out of the city. But this isn't just any ordinary guy. The Bible tells us that this guy is a priest and a king who is worshiping the same God as Abraham. It's a really interesting story. It's a huge mystery. We do not know much about this character that shows up inside the Bible. I personally believe that he was a real person. He was a real king. Um, you know, he was a king and a priest. It was a weird combination. So you have to imagine if, if Abraham knows of the foretelling and the promise of wondering, man, is this the guy? He's priest and a king. But he was not the guy. Abraham goes on upon his way. And again, if you know anything about Abraham, he's a swindler. He's a liar. He tries to help out God by um, being intimate with Sarah's handmaiden. Um, I mean, all kinds of problems. And yet, what does God still do from Abraham? Multiply his kingdom to eventually become, again, the people we're talking about today that the Israelites inside the story of Exodus. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. Now, then what happens? Well, we get to the story inside the book of Exodus. And God has been dwelling in Eden, right? He's ministering to, to Abraham through this guy named Melchizedek, who is a prophet and a king. Then we come to the book of Exodus. God says, okay, I'm going to leave the mountaintop, and I'm going to come and dwell amongst my people. And so, so Aaron and your sons, you're the high priest, and you are the priest. In a few weeks, I'm going to talk about Aaron. We'll spend quite a bit of time talking about Aaron. It takes them 11 months to build the tabernacle. And on their first day on the job, again, all of these specific roles and responsibilities have been given to Aaron's sons on how to be priest. On the very first day of the job, guess what Aaron's sons decide to do? Do we really have to do it this way? I mean, haven't you ever asked yourself that question, your boss tell you to do something? You're like, do we really have to do it this way? Isn't there a better way of doing this? And Aaron's son began to act like that. And on their first day of the job, they break the will of God, the commands of God, and God strikes them dead in punishment in the middle of the tabernacle. Why? Because he takes his glory seriously, and he takes the rules and responsibility. He holds the priest to a higher standard than he does everyone else. Maybe Aaron and his sons are the priests that the Bible's been telling us is coming. But what do you learn? They're not. Next, if you keep going, you eventually get to Jerusalem, right? In the history of the Israelites. And who's in charge? David. Lots of you guys have heard David. Even you kids have probably heard of David. David fights this giant and he becomes the king. He's God's chosen man to be the king. 
Well, between what we're talking about today and, uh, and David's kingdom, um, the, the Ark of the Covenant and all the pieces from the tabernacle, guess what happens? They get taken by their enemies, and then the Israelites win them back. It gets taken, and then they win them back. It gets taken, and then they win them back. And while David is king, guess what happens? They win all of the pieces to the tabernacle back. By this time, David has set up a city, uh, the city or the city of Jerusalem is set up. And this is your, your Bible nerding out right now. See if you pick up on this. Where did Abraham meet Mechizedek? In Salem. Where is David? Jerusalem. They're the same city. Salem is the ancient name. For Jerusalem. All right? There is something about this place that is set apart, that is holy, that is consecrated to the Lord. So when David and his army, when they win the Ark of the Covenant, the Bible tells us that they're taking it and they're going to set up the tabernacle once again. They've had it lost. They're going to set it up again inside the center of Jerusalem on top of a mountain. And the Bible describes David, guess what he's wearing that day? The Bible tells us that he's, he's well, let's, let's do this like 1980s. He's electric sliding toward the center of town. He is so excited. And he is dressed like a high priest. David is the king. And yet on this day, he is dressed like the high priest. So you have to wonder if the people of God aren't wondering is this the priest? Is this the guy? Is this our Messiah? Well, if you keep reading the story of David, well, you know. Head scratcher. Dude has a God. He has, the Bible would describe him as a man after God's own heart. But he eventually has an adulterous affair. He's a terrible, terrible dad. And he also has a person murdered. By the end of David's life, he's questioning whether or not he can really even trust God. And he kind of tries to force the hands of God by working on earthly means instead of relying on the power of God. So is David that guy? You guys know that David was a warrior, but David also liked music. He was a weird, kind of metrosexual, strange person. Okay? In the sense of, like, he was very artsy, and yet you wouldn't want to fight with this guy. And so in that, what begins to take place is, is by the time that you get to the writings of Psalms, many of the Psalms are written by this guy named David. And in one of those particular Psalms, in Psalm chapter 110, he's writing and he's listening to God, and one of those verses inside that passage is God tells him or shows him that one day one would come from you, from the priest, he would be like a priest, like Melchizedek. Well, you skipped ahead. Hundreds of years, and Christmas comes. And where is Jesus doing ministry? Inside and around the most holy of cities, named what? Jerusalem. 
Now, for 30 years, Jesus is just Jesus down the block. He's Joseph's son. He's a carpenter. It probably means he worked a lot with rocks and masonry and all these sorts of things. But at the age of 30, Jesus' cousin is outside of the city of Jerusalem, and he's baptizing people, preaching for them to repent, and for the kingdom of God is at hand. And all of a sudden, in this crowd of people, out of everyone there, the Bible tells us that John looks and sees his cousin, and it's almost like a revelation takes place. And what does John say of Jesus? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Essentially, he's saying the kingdom of God is here, and it's Jesus. And notice what is the next thing that happens. What does John do to Jesus? He baptizes him. He gets washed. Not because he's sinful, but because for Jesus to be the one, he must have an ordination. He must have a ceremony in front of people. Jesus gets washed in the Jordan. Then what does it say? He comes up out of the water, the sky opens up, and a voice from heaven says what? This is my son who I'm well pleased. He's essentially saying, hey everybody, this is, and the Bible tells us that, and I don't know if it was a literal bird or if it wasn't, but the Bible says that God's presence comes and rests upon Jesus like a dove. What's taking place? He is anointed by God, and from that moment inside of the Bible, what does Jesus start acting like? A priest. He starts healing people. He starts going to the poor, right? All the while, the priests with the titles are working in Jerusalem, and by the time that Jesus shows up in this time period in the history of humanity, the priests, the ones who are supposed to be doing all this, want nothing to do with the Israelites. It's really become about a money-grubbing power struggle between the, the priests, these religious leaders, and the Roman government. And they want nothing. They don't want to do their jobs. That's why when Jesus shows up, what happens when he goes to the temple? Brother's kicking over tables. Chasing out with a whip. What's he establishing? I'm in charge of this place. This is to be a place of prayer, but you've made it into a den of thieves and robbers. It gets so bad that pretty soon before Jesus is to be crucified, do you guys remember what happens? Is the Bible tells us that he's hanging out with a group of his closest friends, and in a few days, a few hours, um, Jesus is going to be betrayed, and he's going to be crucified. And a lady comes in with a, what, an alabaster box of pure nard, this fragrant oil. And what does she do to Jesus? She breaks it over him. He is saturated in oils. I had a professor one time, my doctoral work, said, could you imagine our bloody Jesus He's been beaten beyond recognition. 
his beard ripped out of his face. His friends have left him. There is blood, sweat, and tears. And yet Jesus occasionally would get a whiff. Because the Bible tells us after she does that, because the disciples are freaking out. And Jesus says, no, as, as long as people are talking about me, they will talk about this woman. And what am I doing in 2021? Talking about the woman who poured this, it must have been poignant. You ever been around somebody who's like trying to cover up their stuff or like your grandma, right? She got Avon on or something. Old Spice back in the day. Brute, right? You had to get your cologne out of a glass car, right? Remember those days? And it's poured all over our Jesus, and yet while he's dying, he occasionally gets the remnants of a whiff of what? The anointing oil that is all over his body. Jesus, when he's standing in trial, there's a high priest named Caiaphas. And in this dialogue, this is the Eric Standard Version, there's this dialogue, and essentially what Caiaphas says to Jesus as he's standing there, this beaten mess, he looks at Jesus and says, Are you the anointed one? Because why is that in direct conflict? He's the high priest. He's the anointed one. He's been given the title. Guess what Jesus quotes? Psalm 110. From the house. There's a true and greater priest that is coming from Melchizedek. Jesus declares, I am him. And because of that, they killed him the next day. The beauty of the priesthood it's not getting, you know, wrapped up and do we, you know, do we, do we need priests, all these sorts of things. No, the, the beauty of all this, this is pointing to is that, no, we, we have a priest and his, his name is Jesus. And he supersedes all of these other people who have been putting in these roles and responsibilities. The reason why I'm not wearing a priest collar today, the reason why we don't have Protestant priests is because the Bible clearly tells us in the book of Hebrews that we don't need it. Because we have an ultimate one. All these other words, guess what we're going to do? We're going to let you down. That's what we say inside of our membership class. Man, if you're looking for us as your pastors to be perfect and to never let you down or disappoint you, you probably need to go on down the road. But I'll let you know something. They're going to let you down too. Why? Because, man, we are among us. You were called out to serve. But the reality is, is man, we can never be your Savior. These saviors can never be, uh, or these priests can never be your saviors. Your pastors can never be your saviors. I cannot forgive your sin. There is only one who can do that, and his name is Jesus. He is the ultimate high priest that all of the Bible is pointing to, is that this is the priest that you need. This is the ultimate server and representative representative of God to the people. And yet simultaneously, even as we speak, ladies and gentlemen, Jesus never stops in his work and continual work to make sure that you are served in heaven as, he, as he's serving as your very priest. 
you need to read the book of Hebrews. Inside the book of Hebrews, we have a slide of, of some of these passages of what uh, the book of Hebrews says. Listen to what it says about this high priest. And it's speaking of Jesus, a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, 217. A high priest of our confession, 3-1. A great high priest of 414. A great high priest forever, 620. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tents. Uh, in the true tense, um, that the Lord set up not man in chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. A high priest of the good things that have uh, come, 9, 11. A great high priest over the household of God, 10, 21. Go to the next one, Ivan, as well. Inside the Hebrews chapter 7, it says this. Listen to these words. The former priests were many in number because there were perverted, excuse me, not perverted. They were perverted, but in a different way. Because they were prevented by death continuing in office. But he holds this priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is the gospel is that Jesus is your priest. If you're not a follower of Jesus in here this morning, here's the deal. You're either going to represent yourself before an almighty holy God, or there will be the perfect priest standing in your place declaring, saved, forgiven, saved, forgiven, saved, forgiven. He has done that, and he will do that for all of eternity as he stands continuing. He never slumbers in his work as your pastors will be many. They will die earthly priest, they will die. The priest inside the scripture, they will die. But this Jesus has always been the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he is standing before an almighty God pleading on your behalf. And because that holy God sees Jesus, it is a done deal every time. It is finished. 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 All of my wealth, God, give it to these undeserving people. Why? Because if Jesus is inside you, the Bible will tell us in, in the book of Peter that the priesthood that the Israelites did not want as an entire nation, guess what we get to do? We get to be those priests. You want to see the priest? Look around at the true believer in here. True believer in here. What's your role? To serve each other. To represent God. That when you, you're so holy, you so love Jesus, you're humble, and yet you're holy because of Jesus. We all understand that you're broken. We might all make mistakes. We get that, okay? But your devotion is so toward God that anybody in this room or anybody in this community, when they're in their darkest of day, when they're in their lowliest of night, when they sin to the point where they believe that it is beyond repair and beyond forgiveness, what should they be able to do? is to look at the people in this room. And for those of you who are in Christ, as we talked about last week, he is dwelling inside of you. The true priest is living inside of you. And we get to do what the Israelites could not do because the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, is in us, enabling us to be something and desiring to be something that these people could have never been. All courtesy of Jesus. Why do we need to study crazy chapters, what appears to be crazy chapters to us? 
is because those chapters too point to Jesus and the beauty of the gospel. Mission Church, let us not be disobedient. Let us, let us joyfully obey as the priesthood of believers to each other, to our neighborhoods, to our city, to our state, to our nation, and to the world. May we be the light on that lampstand. God's glory doesn't shine in all of this. All the stuff has to be replaced. The presence of God dwells in the people of God and invites us to come play on that mission to make sure that people see the true priest. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for being in spite of us. Um, Lord, you save us. You forgive us. You alone have the power to save. Unlike earthly men, 